Second Chronicles 20, and we'll read from verse 31 down through the seventh verse of chapter 21. So Jehoshaphat was king over Judah. He was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azuba, the daughter of Shilhai. And he walked in the way of his father Asa, and did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, for as yet the people had not directed their hearts to the God of their fathers. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, first and last, indeed they are written in the book of Jehu, the son of Hanani, which is mentioned in the book of the kings of Israel. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who acted very wickedly. And he allied himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish, and they made the ships in Ezion Geber. But Eliezer, the son of Dodavah of Narashah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works. Then the ships were wrecked, so that they were not able to go to Tarshish. And Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers, and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jehoram his son reigned in his place. He had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariahu, Michael, and Shephatiah. All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father gave them great gifts of silver and gold and precious things with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. Now when Jehoram was established over the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and killed all his brothers with a sword, and also others of the princes of Israel. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. For he had the daughter of Ahab as a wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him, and to his sons forever. The congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've come to the, the final chapter and, uh, the, the end of Jehoshaphat's life and reign. At the outset of this series, we, uh, define Jehoshaphat as a godly king who cared for God's people. And I trust that was borne out in our study of his life and reign. But we also learned in this study that, uh, as the saying goes, the best of men are men at best. And all men and women, including kings, they die. They're like withering grass, as we all are, as uh, falling flowers. But the word of the Lord endures forever. As we read in the book of Isaiah, quoted in the book of James or Peter, uh, God is unchanging. He is unchanging in his truth, in his grace, in his promises, in his faithfulness. 
And we close our, our study of the life and reign of Jehoshaphat with that theme, with our emphasis upon God's faithfulness. And uh, we want to see how Jehoshaphat's life directs us to the faithfulness of God. And we're going to consider a number of ways in which that becomes evident, beginning with the fact that it's uh, through Jehoshaphat's long reign, a reign of doing what was right. He ruled for 25 years over Judah, and uh, his reign is summarized there in verse 32 of chapter 20, where it says, He walked in the way of his father Asa, and did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. And at this point, we might also remember what was uh, mentioned at the outset of our study, and that is that Josh, Jehoshaphat, as, as a godly king, was God's gift uh, to his people uh, to lead them in the way of faith, in the way of obedience to God. And that means that Jehoshaphat himself was uh, only an instrument in God's hands. We're reminded of this even in uh, verse 30. We didn't include that verse in our reading, but it kind of brought the last uh, section we looked at to a conclusion where it says, Then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. Yes, that was through Jehoshaphat's uh, godly dependence upon God and his leadership among the people. Uh, but it's God who gave them rest. It's God who brought the, the surrounding nations to fear uh, Judah, and he gave them peace. Jehoshaphat was only an instrument in God's hands. You know that the constant impulse of human pride is to exalt man, and Satan deludes people with imaginary authority and imaginary power. We see that in the, the governments of the world world leaders who repeatedly uh, take on that beastly character. That's why the book of Revelation depicts the, the world powers uh, in terms of the beast in its opposition to God's kingdom and God's people. And that is characteristic of worldly powers. They are driven by Satan, uh, the dragon who gives such power to the beast. They're driven for absolute power. Caesar is Lord. That was the claim of the emperor of Rome. And how many people follow that? How many people today uh, worship the dear leader who claims divine power and totalitarian control over the lives of people? But godly kings and godly leaders are not like that. The kingdom of God is not like that. And those who are great in the kingdom of God are to be servants of all. And uh, when it comes to those who indeed indeed appear great in terms of their service of God, they themselves acknowledge that they're only instruments in God's hands. We have an instance of that in uh, the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 3 with reference to uh, the ministers of the gospel, where we read in verse uh, 5 and following, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. The one who waters, the one who plants, they're not anything. They're nothing. 
Paul actually uses that kind of language also as he's constrained to defend himself in terms of unjust accusations of self-centeredness. He's uh, compelled to give testimony to uh, his ministry and service, but in such a way that, again, is very careful to deny any significance in himself. In 2 Corinthians uh, 12, verse 11, he says, I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. In no respect was I inferior to those super apostles that they claim to follow. And yet, he acknowledges that in himself he is nothing. He is only a minister, only an instrument, a servant in God's hands. And remembering that uh, serves to keep us grounded in reality. Because it's only God's reign, it's only God's uh, faithfulness that gives stability and gives security in all the changes of life. And with this perspective, yes, we can be, we can be grateful for godly leaders like Jehoshaphat, while at the same time we can be honest about their failings, and yet we can be unsettled about their failings. You've noticed that chapter 20 doesn't really end on a positive note about Jehoshaphat. And we will look at that, that besetting sin that again appears at the very, uh, end of his life, or towards the end, but we can look at it. And we can look at it without glossing over it. Or we can look at it without thinking, oh, we really should back up and we need to, we need a revision of what it says in verse 32 that he did not turn aside from doing right. No, that is a, a, a divine, uh, uh, description of Jehoshaphat's life and reign. Now, the, the text itself acknowledges that there are, that there are exceptions, but that is not the, the overall picture that God's word gives to this man. So we need not gloss over his faults and uh, we need not be disturbed over them because ultimately the, the, the lessons of the life of Jehoshaphat are not about Jehoshaphat. It's about God. It's about God, God working. And that includes God's grace of using uh, imperfect instruments for good. And uh, that ought to lead every one of us to take heart. Whether we're parents, uh, whether we're office bearers in the church, whether we're bosses on the job, we can be honest and realistic about the limitations of our effectiveness, about uh, the reality of our, our failings and about the, the criticisms that we face, whether legitimate or not legitimate, without taking them too seriously, right? That was one thing I was, I was taught in seminary. Don't take yourself too seriously. Take your calling very seriously. Take your responsibilities very seriously. But don't take yourself too seriously. If you will, if you do that, you're going to be too elated. You're going to become proud of your successes, or you're going to be crushed. You're going to be discouraged over your failings, over the criticisms of others, because it's not about you. And that ought, to, that ought to be encouraging to each one of us, knowing that every one of us occupies just a very, very small place in God's plan, in God's purpose. And we can fill that place with confidence, thankful for whatever gifts God has given us without being envious of others who have different gifts, 
Because we recognize that ultimately it's not about us. By grace, we are privileged to be a part of his kingdom, to be members of his body, so that we might serve for the glory of his name. And actually, that's where the happiness of service comes from, the recognition that it's a privilege to know God, to live as members of his kingdom, having some small role that hopefully will indeed be for the blessing of others and the honor of God. And that's how we should look at Jehoshaphat. That's how we should look at his long reign of doing what was right. And then secondly, we look at uh, God's faithfulness, evident in corrective discipline. And, and here it's discipline for a repeated failure. Jehoshaphat allied himself with a wicked king again. You recall the account of his alliance with, with Ahab before. And on that occasion, it was for a military expedition against the Syrians. This time, it's with his wicked son, Ahaziah. And here, it's for a trading partnership. It's for economic reasons. We're, we're, that's made clear when we uh, compare this account with what we're told in 1 Kings in chapter 22, verse 48. It says, Jehoshaphat made merchant ships to go to Ophir for gold, but they never sailed for the ships were wrecked at Ezion Geber. Obviously, the same reference in our text before us. And here's a, a sad and a, a humbling example. And let's, let's, let's be honest. Uh, let's be personal and applicable and relevant to our own lives by saying here is a humbling example of our own sinfulness. Isn't it true that we often fail to learn uh, painful lessons and we fall into the same sins as before? If we know the Bible, we know that that, in fact, is often the repeated story of the saints. Isn't it the story of Abraham when he lied about Sarah in order to save his own skin and he was rebuked for it? He faced discipline, he faced consequences, and then he did it again. And then his son Isaac followed his bad example also. How many instances of that can we find in Scripture? We can find it in the record of David in his reign. Yes, we can immediately uh, uh, point to his uh, adultery and murder of Uriah as a, as a horrible expression of the remaining power of sin and of temptation and how far the saints can fall. But there are other failures. If you, if you look carefully at the life of David, he was far too indulgent with his boys. When Amnon raped Tabor, Tamar, he didn't deal with it. And when Absalom murdered Amnon, he didn't really deal with it. He's far too lenient and indulgent with his sons. In fact, when we look at the, the, the account of the saints throughout scripture, we find that indeed, uh, their, their weaknesses of personality or character or even their strengths at times become the occasion of temptation and of sin. And brothers and sisters, that's true of us. That's why we are exhorted in the letter to the Hebrews to run with endurance the, the race that is set before us, laying aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And the writer doesn't define that sin. Because it may be very individual. Besetting sin, sometimes it's called. 
sins related to our upbringing, our personality, our circumstances in life that really define our particular battle in life. And it's a battle that we often lose as, by God's grace, we also make progress in fighting against our sins. But here we have a sad account of Jehoshaphat's failure in this matter. Jehoshaphat appears, and we might say this was, on one hand, it appears to be a a commendable and attractive feature of of Jehoshaphat, but on the other hand, it appears to have made him vulnerable to the harmful influences of others, and that is that he was just too optimistic in his assessment and judgment about them, and too hopeful about the benefits or the no-harm involved in alliances with the enemies of God. And he fell into that sin again and added to his guilt, as is so often the case with ourselves also, is a sin of ingratitude. You notice how verse 35 begins with the words, After this, after this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah. After what? Well, again, reviewing the history, we know that it was after he had allied himself with Ahab and suffered the bad consequences of that and was disciplined and corrected and repented, and then experienced God's grace and blessing and restoration and effectiveness and deliverance. And after all that, isn't that a common story? We have we have the similar uh, kind of language, actually, in the book of Ezra. And there again, it was in connection with uh, ungodly alliances, here by way of marriage. God's people married, marrying those uh, pagans from the surrounding nations. And we hear in, in Ezra's prayer an acknowledgement, not only of the guilt of their sin, but of the ingratitude that was involved in it. Because they had also suffered the Lord's discipline for their idolatry. They had been carried away captive into Babylon. And they had experienced God's grace of deliverance. And they had been restored. And the temple had been rebuilt. And after all that has come upon us, we read in his prayer of confession, for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? It's an acknowledgement of the sin of unfaithfulness, and of ingratitude. And how often isn't that part of our sorrow for sin, that we feel that we have shown ourselves ungrateful to God for his grace and mercy to us. God disciplined Jehoshaphat for his sin. Right? We hear it in the prophetic rebuke that God graciously and faithfully sent his way by a prophet here of a different name, Eliezer, He prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works. Then the ships were wrecked, so that they were not able to go to Tarshish. That makes us, that makes clear what those works were that the prophet refers to. Destroyed his plans and his efforts and his, his uh, investments. In the book of Hebrews, uh, we read also, in the 12th chapter, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. 
For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? In other words, discipline, correction, is a result of God's faithful love. Even as fathers correct and discipline their children for their good, God shows his love in correcting us for our sins. And sometimes, and, and I think most often, most characteristically, that correction comes by way of his word. It comes by way of the reproofs and the instructions of God's word. God is able to make his word, even even on its own, effective to bring us to a change of mind and a way of thinking. But sometimes God also adds to his word circumstances in our lives, painful experiences to go along with the word in order to humble us and to bring us to repentance. Again, to refer to Hebrews chapter 12 and the 11th verse, it says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And Jehoshaphat received this training. I know it's not mentioned here in uh, chapter 21. In fact, in order to in order to learn about it, we do have to turn to another account back in in uh, First Kings, clearly in the same context of his alliance uh, with uh, Ahaziah, and the ships were wrecked at Ezion Geber. But then we read in verse 49, Then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat would not. So clearly, there was another occasion later on, after these ships were wrecked, that Ahaziah invited him to come along again with his servants. And this time, no, he didn't do it. So though it's not recorded here in Second Chronicles, uh, there is indeed indication that Jehoshaphat again repented of his sin. Now we might ask, well then why isn't that mentioned in Second Chronicles? Well, I think there are two observations that we can make from this, and one of those observations is about the need to know our Bibles and the challenge to compare Scripture with Scripture. Because by doing that, we'll be kept from making a lot of mistakes about interpreting things. Because we'll imagine that, say, in Mark's account, we have the whole picture, and so we draw inferences and conclusions that actually... Uh, are contradicted by what we're told in Luke. Not because the passages conflict, but those passages in themselves don't tell the whole story. Now, I know that's a challenge, and we will make mistakes. We will make mistakes. But the more we know our Bible, the more we'll be spared from those kinds of mistakes, and the more we'll have the, the complete picture that God intends for us. Yes, the Bible is a challenging book. It's a big book with a lot of details. And it deserves a lifetime of study and reflection, comparing Scripture with Scripture. But it's so valuable and so important, not only to keep us from mistakes, but to enrich us with the wealth of God's Word. That's why we have three uh, Gospel accounts, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They cover, cover much the same material, but they they include different details. And by comparing these passages, we get a more complete scripture. That's one consideration. 
I think the second one's probably even more important and more significant, at least in terms of this passage before us, and that is that it may be that we are sometimes more interested in cleaning up or clearing up details about people's character than the Bible itself is when it comes to individuals, right? We can ask questions. Was, was so-and-so in the Bible? Was, was he a true believer? Was she a true believer? Did they repent of their sins? Well, the fact is, that's not always made clear in every instance. And what that means is that that's not so important. The Bible doesn't give us such details simply to satisfy our, our curiosity because it's not, again, ultimately about, about man, about his goodness or about his failures, but it is about God. It's about God's work. And it's about God's will. And the relevance of that pertains to God's work and God's will with respect to us. What are we to believe? How are we to trust in God? And how are we to obey him? And so when the Bible doesn't answer the kinds of questions that you would like to have answered, well, then we should realize that rather than speculate and make things up, as if these things are important, we should just accept that the Holy Spirit didn't consider them important for us. Because there are other things to focus our attention on. And in this passage, indeed, it's God's faithfulness. Not an exact uh, description of Jehoshaphat's character in every respect. I don't think that's the interest of Scripture with respect to anyone. Thirdly, we consider God's covenant mercy displayed despite great wickedness. When I say great wickedness, I'm not talking here about Jehoshaphat. I'm talking about Jehoram, his son. His short reign is summarized in verse um, 6. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, right? Not, not, the, not the kings of Judah, but the kings of Israel, the northern tribes, which characteristically, one after the other, were marked by wickedness, just as the house of Ahab had done. For he had the daughter of Ahab as a wife, Athaliah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And more of that evil is described in the rest of this chapter. Jehoram was a king like the world's uh, wicked kings, like the wicked despots of this world, the tyrants, the dictators, the emperors, whatever their title might be. Besides his idolatry, Jehoram showed that he was of the wicked one, and he murdered not one, but six of his brothers when he gained power perhaps out of some fear, some superstition, some suspicion that they wouldn't be content with Jehoshaphat's wise and generous distribution of his gifts, placing his sons over different cities with their own wealth. That wasn't enough for Jehoram. He wanted to eliminate the possibility of any rival. That only not only included his brothers, but it included other princes that he imagined could be a threat to him. Isn't that characteristic? You've heard the illustration of uh, riding the tiger. And that's uh, been a description that's often been applied to dictators of this world. They have to be in power until they die because there's no, there's no retirement from being a dictator. Because the next one is going to make sure that you don't live to be any kind of threat to him. So when we look at men like Xi Jinping or, Ping or uh, Putin or the little man over there in North Korea, they're riding the tiger. It's a miserable position to be in as they claim absolute power. 
we might ask questions here, too. We might ask the question, how could it be that such a father should have such a son? I suppose in general we can go to the um, 18th chapter of Ezekiel and read that yeah, there, yes, indeed, godly fathers sometimes have ungodly sons. And ungodly sons sometimes in turn have godly sons. And sometimes ungodly fathers repent and become godly. And apparently godly sons turn away from the Lord and become ungodly. And the point being throughout that chapter is that the soul who sins, it shall die. No one goes to heaven on their parents' bootstraps or whatever. Apron strings maybe is the better one. Everyone is responsible before God for their individual life. We might ask also, why was Jehoram made king rather than one of those other brothers? Verse 13 of the next chapter makes clear that those brothers were better than him. There may indeed have been godly young men among them. And the simple reason that we're given there is that he was the firstborn. There's no suggestion of criticism of Jehoshaphat on this matter. It's just the way it was. Perhaps we can step back and ask a broader question yet. Why? Why? Why such wickedness in David's house? Why such shameful behavior, such murderous, idolatrous, tyrannical power among God's people? And the answer to that question indeed requires that we step back a long ways and we survey this age-old conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that was introduced back there in Genesis chapter 3, and recognize that this conflict between the world and the church, this conflict between the devil and Christ, this conflict between God's people and those who are of the wicked one, is not simply a matter of us against them in terms of the professed people against the people of the world or the professed Christian church against the world. But this conflict often rages within the church, among the professed people of God, in the house of David. That's what's happening here. But we know that the seed of the woman will win. Despite the great wickedness of Jehoram, we read, Yet the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons, Forever. A covenant with David. You can go back to Second uh, Samuel chapter uh, 7, where we read of that covenant that God established with David, narrowing those covenant promises to Abraham, to one of Abraham's sons, David, giving that covenant promise greater detail and definition, including the fact that of David's own body, one would occupy the throne and hold it forever. And this covenant purpose of God is like a lamp that would never be extinguished. In fact, it's associated with that throne, this lamp of God. In fact, it's associated at times even with the one who occupies the throne. You remember this account in Second uh, uh, Samuel 21 where, where David is in the midst of warfare and he is about to be uh, overcome. 
and Abishai and others of his uh, mighty men, they, they step in and they save his life. And then Abishai says, you know, you're not going to go out to battle anymore. David was getting older. Lest the lamp of Israel be extinguished. Referring to David. He wanted to protect his life. And we might say that indeed Jehoshaphat was like a lamp of God amidst of his people. Because he upheld the word of God. And he exemplified faith in God. And he sought the good of the people for God's sake as his servant. But that throne was darkened through the wickedness of Jehoram. But God would not destroy it. Jehoram tried to. His actions tended to do that, right? God would preserve that throne in a surviving son of Jehoram himself. When the surrounding nations, as we read in verse 16, the Philistines and the Arabians, uh, they came up to Judah and invaded and carried away all the possessions that were found in the king's house. Also his sons and his wives, referring to his concubines and wives, so that there was not a son left to him except Jehoahaz, also called Ahaziah. Not the Ahaziah who was the son of Ahab, but Jehoram had a son, and he named him Ahaziah too. And he was the only one left when his sons were carried away. And when that wicked wife of Jehoram came into power, she destroyed all the royal heirs and managed to do it except for one. Right? So we got three times in which there's only one left. Jehoram, he killed all his brothers. All his sons were taken away and killed into captivity, except for one. Then Athaliah destroyed all of Ahaziah's sons, except one, Joash. Joash was hidden away. He survived. You see how Satan rages against the promise of God? And how God often, despite all appearances, preserves one, preserves one to occupy his throne. That house wouldn't be destroyed. It would be preserved. It would be preserved throughout the captivity. It would be preserved. Uh, following their restoration. It would be preserved in those dark years from Malachi until Matthew. And a king would be born to hold that throne forever. By the tender mercy of God, the, the day spring or the sunrise would dawn. A light to those who sit in darkness. That's the, that's the language of Zechariah concerning the birth of, uh, his son, John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner of the Christ, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jehoram would not be that light. In fact, he would not see that light. He lost everything. He lost his life. He lost his life by a horrible death. It's one of the most gruesome descriptions of death under God's judgment we have in Scripture. It says, After all this, the Lord struck him in his intestines with an incurable disease. Then it happened in the course of time, after the end of two years, that his intestines came out because of his sickness. So he died in severe pain. And his people made no burning for him like the burning for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and to no one's sorrow departed. Everyone was glad when this tyrant, this wicked man, was dead. Horrible death. What a warning against opposing Christ's kingdom. But for us today, the message of God's faithfulness comes down to this. Christ is the light. Not only the light of Israel, but as he said, 
I am the light of the world. He who believes in me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of light. I am the light of the world. While you have the light, believe in the light, lest the darkness overtake you. God's covenant faithfulness and promises from the beginning concerning the seed of the woman through Abraham, through David, were fulfilled in Christ. He's the righteous king and savior who occupies an eternal throne, who is our Lord and our savior. You know, I admitted one, one detail to this point found in our text. I kind of reserved it for last. It's a, the, the statement there in verse 33. After the description of Jehoshaphat's reign, it says, Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, for as yet the people had not directed their hearts to the God of their fathers. And again, that's kind of a discouraging text, isn't it? Because the previous verse describes this great victory of Israel as they praised God and as they went forth to, uh, not really to battle, but to observe God's victory over their enemies. And yet, in a summary of Jehoshaphat's reign, there is a nevertheless... Though he removed those idolatrous uh, places of worship, those places that supposedly were still yet to Jehovah, they remained. But you notice that Jehoshaphat's not faulted for this. But rather the explanation is given that the people did not turn their hearts to God. Isn't that a solemn thing? Doesn't it show that that even with all their 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 outward zeal, and with their outward conformity to the to the laws and the leadership of Jehoshaphat, that doesn't mean that their hearts were changed. It's a reminder, isn't it, that orthodoxy is not enough. Religious observances are not enough. If our hearts are not turned to God. And you know, when people's hearts are turned to God, the way it always appears is not with some self-confident determination. I'm going to turn my heart to God. But it's the recognition of the need for His work, for His grace, to turn to God in our sin and our weakness. Pray that He would show His mercy to us, that He would secure the love and trust and obedience of our hearts. Turn us and we will be turned. Well, may God bless his word to us that each one of us indeed might turn our hearts to God and trust in him that we might live as his people and glorify him, trusting in his only son, our king, our savior. Amen.